divine vineyard owner, help us to see all people, ourselves included, with the eyes of your gracious love. Amen. I was listening to an interview recently with a professional taster. Doesn't that sound like a fun job? People are so interested in your tasting notes that you get to make a living out of tasting things and telling people what you taste. Well, someone asked him why it is that we can taste something today and then taste that exact thing tomorrow and it tastes different. His answer was that the food or the drink hasn't changed, rather we have. Our mood, how hungry we are, our hydration level, what our allergies are like that day, when the last time we brushed our teeth was, what else we've had to eat or drink that day, all change the chemistry of our mouths. The taste hasn't changed, but the taster has. The fancy word for this idea and field of study is hermeneutics. And it's an important concept for us to understand. Think of looking through a microscope to study something. We can do all sorts of things to manipulate that object. We can put it under ultraviolet light. We can use dyes to see different parts of it. We can dissect it. And those are all valid approaches of study. When we think about scripture, those would be things like considering the socio-historical context, or the genre, or translation issues. But there's another essential part of interpretation, not only of scripture, but our interpretation of the news, of our emotions, of our thoughts. We have to consider not only what is under the microscope, but also what is above it. That would be us, the observer. If the microscope's lens is broken or flawed, that will impact what we see. And if we are arrogant enough to think that the lens through which we are looking through is not even there, well then we can easily mistake an opinion for reality, a bias for a given, a perspective for totality. In science, this is referred to as the observer effect, made famous by the example of Schrodinger's cat, or as our professional taster would say, the recipe didn't change, we did. Or to put it even more bluntly, avoiding the question of hermeneutics and our bias is like, is like drinking orange juice after you've brushed your teeth and insisting that there's something wrong with the orange juice. Now you all know that I'm an adjunct professor of preaching at Hood Seminary. I'm teaching a class this semester and we've just had some lectures on hermeneutics. The question of what we bring to biblical interpretation and how that influences our preaching of scripture. And so that's an example right there of why it's important to think about what we're thinking about. If I were not teaching this class, I pretty much guarantee that you would be getting a different sermon this morning. Now, there's nothing wrong with being influenced by things, but it's downright dangerous 
to be ignorant about those things that are influencing us. As a case study for how hermeneutics matters in biblical interpretation, I walked the students through this very gospel text from Matthew that we heard read as an exercise in hermeneutics. I think that's part of the mastery of Jesus' telling of this parable. It's a parable that messes with our interpretations and our assumptions. To be sure, we will consider the text itself, but we also have to consider who we are in relation to this text. What makes this parable so convicting is the way that it functions like a mirror. Yes, it does tell us something very important about God, and we will get to that. But before the parable does that, it also tells us something very important about ourselves based on how we react to it. Broadly speaking, there are three groups of people in this parable, three sets of laborers. We have the early to work, the middle of the day conscripts, and the Johnny come lately's. Now instinctively, all of us, when we hear this parable, we connect with one of these groups of people. And that tells us a lot about how we see ourselves and our world. Now, as you might guess, a lot of people don't like this parable. Why? Because they say it's not fair. But fairness, of course, is a social construct. Or, using folk wisdom, we can say that assumptions are just planned disappointments. This first group sees themselves as the industrious, hard-working group. They are the glue that holds society together they think. Now, did they question why it is they were the first group to get hired? Probably not. Maybe it was because they looked the part, young and strong. Maybe it was that their parents were known as hard workers, and the landowner is hoping that the apple doesn't fall too far from that tree. We don't know why this first group was the first to get hired, but based on human psychology, it's a safe bet that they did not ask that question of themselves either. They likely thought that their past performance and reputation were the reason that they were the first group to be chosen. Now, if you want to know what someone who is hired early in the morning looks like, you're looking at them. Never had a semester when I was not on the honor roll or the dean's list. Never given detention. Never late for class. For me, or people who see themselves as the deserving and hard workers, this parable just is not fair. Why did they get for free what we worked so hard to earn? But people like me also have to realize that if we identify with those who grumble about fairness in the parable as right as we think we are, others are going to see us as snobbish, judgmental, and entitled. So we need to think about what the other side of what we think is simply a good worth ethic is. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading this parable through the lens of those first workers, so long as we realize that that is our lens, not the only way to see this parable. Because there are other groups that were hired at nine, noon, and three. These are the people who just keep their head down do what's asked of them, and don't make any trouble. 
Maybe some of them think that they really are part of that early group. But they're not going to complain about what others are getting because they're also getting a little bit more than they expected as well. If you are the sort of person who likes to stay under the radar, you might well appreciate these people who just don't participate in the drama that comes later in this parable. The concern, though, with seeing ourselves in this group is that they're just lukewarm, content with mediocrity. Yes, sometimes good enough is good enough. But sometimes when it comes to the dignity of other people, well, that's worth standing up and raising our voices. While minding our business sometimes is a good thing, we also have to remember that we are our brothers and sisters keepers. And then there's the final group who comes around at the end of the workday. And why they arrived late, we don't know. It could have simply been the luck of the draw. Could have been this landowner's fault. Why is he so inept as to not realize how many people he would need to hire at the start of the day and just let them all work all day long? Maybe this last group has a reputation for being lazy, for always playing on their phone at work all the time. Maybe they were older, disabled, or weak. Whatever the reason for their being hired at the end of the day was, we can all imagine what it's like to get passed over to be that new kid on the block. We've all had times when we were not sure if things were going to work out, times when we thought we had run out of chances. And so if we see ourselves in this group, we see the end of the parable from a very different perspective. We wonder why this first group can't rejoice with us over the fact that we too get to go home and happily announce to our family, good news, we get to eat tomorrow. Remember, day laborers had no savings accounts. There was no Galilee helping ministries that would be serving a hot meal at the end of the day. If they did not find work, they would beg. And if the begging did not work, they would starve. Now, more than we realize, many of us belong in this final group. God's promise of blessing was made to Abraham and the children of Israel. It is only by grace that non-Jews like us were brought into the promise by Jesus. In this parable, the church is one of those five o'clock laborers. Now, unfortunately, the church often has a greater sense of entitlement than gratitude. And it's the same story in our nation, isn't it? The vast majority of my ancestors lived in Ireland, Italy, or Romania as recently as last century. And as we know from history, there was tremendous discrimination against immigrants from those countries in the early 1900s. Things have changed dramatically, though. Even though my family arrived here relatively lately, I have been given all the advantages that one can imagine, significantly more advantages than the indigenous peoples of this land, or who came here centuries earlier, but in cargo ships, against their wills. If our hermeneutic of entitlement does not allow us to see grace and favor that we have been given, 
then we really need to work to find some new lenses through which we can view ourselves and others. When the vineyard owner goes to pay out the wages, the grumbling group says, you have made them equal to us. How telling that statement is. There's no gratitude for the fact that they received the daily wage, only a comparison to others. This is how idolatry works. Instead of keeping our eyes on the God who provides, we focus on what other people have. It's not a stretch to say that original sin is about scorekeeping. When the serpent tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it was using this very strategy. Why don't you have what God has? With apologies to my wife, there are no accountants in the kingdom. Because we get into so much trouble when we try to count that which is, by definition, infinite. The vineyard owner had more than enough to make sure that everyone got what they needed. But for some of us, enough is never enough, unless we can say that we have more. As we're preparing for a stewardship campaign that's going to call us to examine our relationship with money, it's worth remembering that somehow expenses always go up to meet any new income that we get, which means that we never get to enjoy or rest in the enoughness that God gives us. Now, some people read this as a parable about fairness and justice, but it's not really. There's a commentary called the Gospel in Solentinime, which is a series of islands just off the coast of Nicaragua. A priest decided to present the stories from the Gospels to the people there and just record their responses. And the result is a hermeneutical lens that not many of us would ordinarily wear, but it's one that is far closer to the people who lived in poverty and oppression when the Gospel was written. When it comes to this particular parable, when they were asked, what do you think of it? The people don't see any fairness in this parable at all. Fairness, they, would, they say, would be if the laborers received not their daily subsistence pay, but if they got a share of the profits. While this parable does call us to question our own economic system, it's bigger than that. It's not a parable about how we see the world. It's a parable about how God sees us. The vineyard owner responds to the grumbling with a question. Are you envious because I'm generous? Now that's a paraphrase, not a translation of the text. The Greek text says, is your eye evil because I am kind? In other words, is your lens so scratched and dirty that you can't see the goodness of the kingdom when it's happening in front of your very eyes? Is your hermeneutic so twisted that we can't see the good news of the gospel? Are we so selfish, myopic, and competitive that good news for someone else has to be bad news for us? Are we so focused on fairness and righteousness 
that we overlook the question of mercy and compassion? Are we so self-confident that we only focus on what we have earned instead of being grateful for all that we have freely received? Do we see the world through our own sinful lenses or through the lens of God's love? Do we have a hermeneutic of deserving or a hermeneutic of grace? Ultimately, this parable is worthy of the name Good News because it tells us something about how God sees us. God has a hermeneutic of grace, seeing us through the lens not of what we deserve, but rather through a love that has no limit. And the place where this love is seen is in the laborer who was sent into the vineyard for us and for our salvation. Jesus toiled in the scorching heat of human sin and endured the cross for those who have done less to earn our salvation than those five o'clock workers did. And for that work, Jesus was given resurrection, the gift of, a, of abundant and eternal life in God. And that resurrection reality has been given to each of us as a gift. If we could only trust that God sees all of us, our friends, our enemies, our neighbors, ourselves, as beloved children who have all been graciously been given a seat at the table of grace.